Welcome to Life Together, a podcast for Gresham Bible Church, where we exist to glorify God in being disciples who make disciples of all people through the transforming power of the gospel. This episode is about summer in the USA and an exciting opportunity we have as a church to participate this summer. I have a conversation with our own Holly Regelman and with Chris Probasco, who works for Summer in the USA called SUSA. We talk about what SUSA is and how they connect local churches in the U.S. to students from the Basque country, a people group that desperately needs the gospel. We'll be hearing more as a church over the coming weeks about SUSA and the opportunity we as GBC will have to partner with SUSA and host students for a month this summer. I'd encourage you to be talking with one another and praying about if the Lord may be leading you to host a student for a month this summer or to help those families who do host. Check out the show notes for more information. And again, you'll be hearing more about this opportunity over the coming weeks. We have two very special guests, and we are going to be talking about SUSA, what it is, an opportunity uh, we're going to have as a church um, to participate. And I'm excited for this conversation as we want to keep growing into a church who is advancing the gospel uh, in and around Gresham and to the ends of the earth. So uh, have Chris and Holly with us. I'm going to ask them each to introduce themselves, and we're just going to have a conversation uh, about SUSA. So first, Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? What should Gresham Bible Church know about you? Yeah, hi, my name is Chris Probasco. Uh, I currently live in San Diego, and I but I went to Bible College actually up in your guys' area in at Multnomah Bible College uh, at the end of the '90s, and it was at Multnomah that I got really passionate about you know missions and unreached people groups, and not too long after that. Um, I found out about the Basque people being an unreached people group living living in Europe and and from there got involved with this ministry somewhere in the USA, otherwise known as SUSA. And I currently have a wife and we've been married for 15 years and we have three beautiful children, um, two girls and a boy. And we enjoy going to the beach. We enjoy being outdoors and traveling and good food and all those great things. Um, we've been, I'm the current uh, area director for the SUSA ministry in the Portland area. And then I'm also in charge of California. And I also work with churches in Alabama. That's awesome. Yeah. I just have to ask, this is unplanned. What's the weather like in San Diego right now? Let us live vicariously through you. Well, you, you you would think it'd be sunny, but we've actually had one of the wettest, coldest winters uh, for a long time. Uh, right now, it is sunny sort of out, but this week we're getting hit by a big storm, just like everybody on the West Coast. Uh, so for the moment, it's sunny. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Holly Regelman, Summit Gresham Bible Church, going to know you. Maybe some newer people aren't. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, like Mike said, I'm Holly Regelman. Um, I've been at GBC since 2007 when it started. Mm-hmm. Um, I am married to my husband, Mike, and we have four kids, uh, two boys and two girls. Um, I got involved with Summer in the USA in 2009 when I was pregnant with our third. 
and um, we've hosted almost every summer since then. Um, a couple summers I coordinated instead of hosted, but um, we have six fast kids that we call our own that we've gone to visit, and um, I do call myself a basket grandma now. So. Um, <laughs> We've been involved with this group for a long time and I uh, love what they're doing in Basque Country. That's awesome. All right. Well, yeah, let's just jump right in. The focus of our conversation will be about what summer in the USA is and, and everything. So let's just start there. Chris, could you kind of paint the picture for us? You know, what is SUSE? Um, and we'll go from there. Yeah, I think the best way to to kind of explain the Sousa story is to start at the beginning, like how it began. So in 1991, a pastor and his wife up in Paulsville, Washington, um, Silverdale, Washington, actually, that area up there on the Olympic Peninsula, they um, came home from, from work one day and their kids were all excited because uh, they were passing around uh, these pictures of of a boy who was 17 years old and he was an exchange student from Spain and he was going to be coming to play basketball at their local high school. And, and the girls thought he was cute and the boys thought he would help their team win the basketball game. So <laughs> they, uh, they said, mom, dad, please, can we host this boy? And and so th they, they said yes to it. And that year, essentially this boy, Ur, and his name is spelled H-U-R, but like Ben Hur from the movie, um, and it's and Ur came to live with them, and and Ur was an amazing kid. And early on during that year, he actually in church had a powerful encounter with Jesus uh, while they were listening to the song "White as Snow," um, and he was so overcome with just. Uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit that he he started broke into tears and went running out of the church and 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 Jane who was uh, Bill's wife uh, you know pastor's wife uh, you know kind of ran out and said hey we're, what's wrong he's like I I just know I want to be white as snow like the song says I want my sins to be you know cleaned away mm -hmm. and so that began. Urs, even though he was raised Catholic with a Catholic background, that was began his relationship with Christ. And that year, um, Bill, Pastor Bill, started discipling Ur on Wednesdays. They'd go out to Starbucks before school. He wouldn't wake up any day except early and on time for school, except that day. So he could go and, and meet with Bill at 6 a.m. before school uh, to have coffee and learn about following Jesus. And so that first year, um, he went deep in his relationship with God. And at the same time, the, the, the Robinson family who hosted him were learning all about this boy they thought was from Spain, when in fact, he wasn't from Spain. He was geographically from Spain, but he was Basque. And when he they got him a Spanish sweater for Christmas, he said he hated it. And he said, they're like, well, why do you hate this sweater? It says Spain on it. He's like, I'm not from Spain. I'm, I'm Basque. And so while Ur was learning about Jesus that year and growing in his relationship with Christ, you know, the Robinsons were learning about this people group that they didn't even know about prior to that. So Sousa really started um, by God's design, that God placed this mm -hmm. student by his providence with this family. And at the time, you know, Bill was pastoring a church that he'd planted uh, 20 years prior and was starting to feel called by God to do missionary work. And, and in particular, he was focused on China. And he'd even taken a trip to China, I think, uh, at that time in the early 90s. But once this 
this year happened with Ur and Ur stayed with their family, um, God began to shift their focus to like, who are these Basque people? And the more they learned about the Basque people, the more, you know, kind of missionaries they talked to that were in Europe and, and even missionaries in Spain, they found out that there was this people group of 3 million people living tucked away in um, basically northeastern Spain and southwestern France. There's three Basque provinces in uh, French Basque country and right up on the Atlantic. So not the Mediterranean side. We're talking about the Atlantic side and then four provinces in Spain. And so here's this modern, developed, you know, nation of Spain and the Basques are part of Spain but they're the oldest people group known in Europe. So they're pre-Indo-European people group. They have their wow. own language that's not related to any other language. And they have even um, a specific DNA and blood types that make them unique. And so the more they learned about the Basques, the more they realized, wow, there's an incredible need here. And we can talk about that more later, but there's an incredible need for people like Ur. Ur was really just representative of a teenager from this people group um, with little or no knowledge of who Christ really is and what the gospel really is. So even though he'd heard about Jesus and Christianity through his Catholic upbringing, not that that's all bad, it actually gave him a little bit of a foundation, uh, but there, here's this boy that has no real knowledge of, of how to, to know Christ and that Christ wants to know him. And so God began shifting their hearts to feel called rather than go to China to actually, what can we do for the Basque country? How can we, how can we help more kids like Ur know Jesus? And so through the middle to late nineties, Ur came back again and again, and then his brother came and his cousins came and then Bill and Jane and, and other host families in their church began taking trips to Basque country and, and just basically fell in love with this people group and were completely adopted really in a way by Ur's family. So because they opened their home to Ur, then when they went over there, Ur's family and extended family basically took them in. And so it really created an incredible, what we call like kind of a a back door into these people's lives. And I'll kind of, you know, end with this, you know, he talked to some missionaries who'd been there for 20 years and they'd never been in a Basque person's home. This is on one of the first trips they took over there. And Bill and his wife were on this trip. And within two weeks, they'd been in like 10 Basque homes. Mm -hmm. And this missionary was in a way, really kind of upset by this, that here he'd been there all these years and had tried all these different kind of what we might call traditionary evangelism methods to meet Basques and share the gospel with Basques and not ever been in a Basque home and never really been brought in. And here's Bill and Jane having just kind of stumbled into this and now they're in home after home after home and having chances to share the gospel and having chances to pray for people and really have a wide open door into these people. Awesome. So that's how Summer in the USA started was we, we say by accident, but it wasn't. It was God starting this uh, by his providence to kind of um, make 
uh, a pastor and his wife and by extension, their church. And now by extension, you know, dozens and dozens of churches over the last 30 years aware of this people group that desperately needs to know about the gospel. Mm, Love it. Ollie, what would you say about that? Like, what's your experience been with SUSA hosting students? Because that's the opportunity in front of GBC this summer is to exactly what Chris painted the picture of is we get a host, potentially some students from a people group who need to come to know Jesus. So yeah, why don't you just kind of like contextualize that for us? What does that look like? Yeah, I think for us, it's looked basically exactly like what Chris just shared. Um, we started in 2009, like I said, um, with our first student and, um, she came that first month. We had no idea what to expect. We'd, um, never hosted in our home before other than people who we knew friends who came to visit and things like that. And so this was a totally unique experience, um, welcoming somebody for a month into our home. And we were a little nervous about that. I was also pregnant at the time. So a lot going on, um, but she fit right into our family. We treated her like another child. Um, she did the things that we did, went to places we went. Um, we had some gospel conversations, but they were pretty minimal um, at that time, to be honest. And she was kind of standoffish um, in regards to those conversations. And so um, we just loved on her and we tried to share Christ's love to her through our family and how we interacted with our kids and um, the prayers we said before dinner or before bed, or um, hopefully in the relationships that she saw us have with other people and our friends. And um, we didn't know what the impact was. And um, she did go to camp. Um, At that time, they were going to Young Life Camp for a week in the summer while they were here. And so we we knew that she heard the gospel there every night. But again, we didn't know the impact that had on her. And so um, I want to say a couple years after that, um, when Chris was actually living in Basque Country at the time, we went to visit with Sousa um, on one of their trips over. And uh, at that time, we stayed with the Sousa group for the first part of the trip and uh, went to schools and kind of shared about the program and invited students to come. Um, to our homes. And then the second part, we went and we stayed with uh, our student Patricia's family. And um, that experience was much like Chris described. We we were immediately welcomed into their home. Um, we ate dinner with them. We went to Patricia's basketball game with them. Um, we were introduced to family and friends and um, all of those sorts of things. And uh, a couple of those experiences stand out uh, the most. Um, and some of the people at GBC have heard these stories before because they're some of our favorite, but, um, while we were at her home having dinner, uh, we were all sitting down at the table and Patricia, before we had dinner said, Mike, do you want to say a prayer for our meal? Mm -hmm. And he was, um, caught off guard, um, but happy and pleased to do that. And um, so, of course, said a prayer and uh, we went on and had the meal. And when we left, the impact to us was huge because we don't know if a prayer has ever been said in that on that at that table, in that flat with their family. Um, And so just the opportunity that God provided to us there um, after hosting their daughter and then 
the other thing was when we were at her basketball game, uh, her dad is a pretty good photographer and so was taking pictures of her game and um, had a digital camera and he took a couple pictures and one of them was of Mike and, and himself. And he showed Mike on his camera and said, look, Patricia's two dads. Um, and just the impact of that, they really did welcome us into their family so much so that he considered Mike on the same level as himself in regards to being her dad. Yeah. And, um, like I said, we didn't know the impact that we had from that month. It'd been a couple of years since that she, since she'd been in our home. Um, we had only communicated there. There was not so many forms of communication in 2009 as there is today. So <laughs> zoom wasn't a thing. FaceTime wasn't a thing. Um, she was not really techie anyways. And so we contacted her at Christmas. We'd wished her a happy birthday. Um, but that was really our only communication with her for a couple of years after she had stayed with us. And then, and then we went to Spain. And so we didn't know how we were going to be received uh, when we got there, but it was such a warm welcome. And truly, like Chris said, we were, we were part of her family, just like we welcomed her into ours. And so the opportunities that that provided were vast. Yeah. I mean, we could have a long conversation. I, I just love this conversation. It's relationally driven. It's focused on an unreached, unengaged people group. We get to do that in our homes with our kids. Like, this is just awesome. Um, maybe next, for those that have maybe never heard of the Basque people, Chris, you said, I didn't, you know, what is that? I thought it was just Spain. Could you help us understand, give us some categories, like who are the Basque people? What are their norms? What's their culture? And then if you could just touch on, like from a mission perspective, are they unengaged? Are they unreached? Just help people understand the Basque people. Yeah. Well, so culturally, uh, you know, they're they're unique in the sense that they still, after, you know, they say about 8,000 years is how long the Basque have been around, which, you know, maybe lines up with like a, a young earth creationist uh, story. So we like that. Um, you know, I... The, those cultural forms, whether it's dance, whether it's song, the main one being the language, um, or whether it's just the way they act and things they do, there's there's very much a Basque way of doing things, okay? Um, the Basques, I'm just trying to think of things that really mark them. They're very industrious. Um, they're hardworking. Um, they're clever. They're, uh, they're, they're very... Uh, good with figuring out solutions to problems. So over the years, because they've lived in this little pocket of Spain, it's a crossroads really for Europe. And there's a pass um, called Ronces Valles, which is up um, just on the border uh, between Spain and France, modern Spain and France, that since before the Romans even, people and armies have been trying to get through this pass because it's the one pass through the Pyrenees mountains to go from kind of Northern Europe to Southern, okay. To the Iberian peninsula, uh, and then on down into, you know, the South of Spain and stuff. And so, um, they've had to be there, hold up in these mountain towns and villages and valleys, uh, and over all these millennia and find ways to kind of maintain themselves, so to speak. So the Basques are incredibly good at, have gotten incredibly good at um, maintaining their Basqueness, even though there might be an occupying uh, army or 
culture or civilization that, you know, the Basque, sometimes they have to fight and sometimes they have to, you know, um, you can read this history, but sometimes they've, they've battled and, and, and kind of prevented people from coming in. And other times they've realized like the Romans, well, we're not going to stop these guys. So let's, let's let them in, but we're not going to, we're not going to turn Roman. We're going to stay Basque. So um, being as old as they are, and then having traveled as much as they have, they invented basically modern whaling, uh, the cod fishing boats that went out all over the North Atlantic, and then over into even uh, kind of work, you know, off the coast of Canada, you know, thousand years ago, were all Basque boats. And then because they were so good at whaling, they got really good at shipbuilding. So then you know, everybody wanted the Basques to build their ships. And so they're this tiny little people group, only 3 million tucked away. I mean, that's the same population as San Diego. Here they are tucked away in this little area, but they've been there forever. They've seen people come and go. They've seen, um, you know, different cultures and armies and, and countries come and go. And then they've traveled all over the place, but while at the same time, always remaining Basque. Hmm. So the first thing to know about Basque is they're not going anywhere. You know, this is this is a really unique thing. Like you take any other people group that's similar or ancient like that. And they were, you know, they were wiped out. They just they don't exist anymore. There's all sorts of people groups like that that don't exist anymore. But the Basques have because of their situation and the things they've gone through uh, gotten really, really good at being Basque and staying Basque. So. I would say that's one really big thing to to realize is that here they're coming over to see us. And it's it's a big deal if you're a Basque to like go to America. It's kind of a rite of passage, so to speak, uh, because there were a lot of diaspora of Basques going to the United States during their civil wars and stuff to escape that that was going on and even escape, you know, Franco and the dictatorship. So for a modern Basque to go to America is a big deal, but they're then coming back and, you know, taking their stories and their experiences and, 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 and what they've learned and then bringing it back and incorporating that into their basqueness and into maintaining their selves and their country and their culture. So I think that's a really big thing. I think the other that I've already kind of touched on is that their language is to be Basque. Like people ask, well, what does it mean to be Basque? Do they, do they look different? Well, they kind of do, but the main thing, that makes a Basque a Basque is their language. So Mm. you could move there, like Holly and Mike could move to Basque country, learn Basque and live in a little village in the Basque country with their kids. And within three to five years, if they were speaking Basques, Basque, they would just be adopted into that town as part of the community. You're Basque now, you speak Basque. And so their language, you know, the, the word for a Basque person in Basque is Uskaldun. And it literally just means one who has Basque. So mm-hmm. one who has, you know, the language, one who speaks the language is a Basque. So their language is really important to them. Their culture, they've fiercely maintained. So I think that's a really big thing to, to know about them, that they've traveled a ton, that they've, they're able to with, withstand all these invading armies over this over the millennia. I mean, we're not even talking about centuries. We're talking about the millennia. Um, Amazing. And so that's, that's really important. And then as far as like um, the unreached nature of them, this is a, a kind of a separate conversation. I'll see how quick I can kind of sum it up. But 
you know, Catholicism is one part of this topic is like, you know, the Basques basically were very, what we would just call pagan, um, which whether that's, um, you know, animistic in their history um, or, or just atheistic that we don't believe in God. And so, but then when Catholicism came through, eventually this dictator of, of Spain, Francisco Franco, um, was in power for, you know, 50 years. And during his, his totalitarian rule, he, he told everybody they're going to have to speak Spanish and they're going to have to be, be Christian or be Catholic. So he enforced um, basically religion on them. So for, and it, and for, for a lot of their culture and for a lot of the time, it, it, it stuck in a, in an unnatural way, right? Like it, it was there and there was a Catholic presence, but, and some people adopted it. Some Basques adopted being Catholic, but once Franco died and his, his mandate to be Catholic went away, Mm-hmm. The vast majority of Basques said, finally, he's gone and we can stop all this. And so they've just gone. They just went back, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, they went back to just being, you know, Basque. And that just meant, you know, we believe either in ancient gods or we don't believe in any god at all. We don't believe in any afterlife. We're just secular. So around that same time, you know, the Lord started sending missionaries you know, what we would call evangelical missionaries uh, to the Basque. And so where we're at now is that really for the last, here we are in 2023, you know, going back to, you know, the late 70s, you know, here we are 40 years, almost 50 years out from when evangelical missionaries, and my, my history might be a little bit off on when the evangelical missionaries first, first came, but basically four decades out, and there have been Evangelical missionaries have come and and shared the gospel in different lots of different ways with Basques, but and there's been even churches planted. Okay, so we we need to realize that there are evangelical churches in in the Basque country. But here's where it gets complicated. Okay, so number one, for for large part in the large part, the efforts that that these evangelical missionaries have made haven't found huge adoption rates by Basques. Okay. So evangelism in Basque country is very challenging and very difficult. There's not a huge interest in them wanting to be Christian or wanting to, to, to receive the message. And when they find out somebody's a missionary, all that conjures up to them is more of this religious stuff that's being forced on us. So it's been very challenging because of that Catholic history, because of the things that went on that were forced on them in the name of religion, in the name of Christianity. It's it's like they just want nothing to do with that. I just want to get as far away as that from that as I can. And so that's been really, really challenging for and, and Spain in general has has had a hard time uh, with evangelism and missions. OK, so Spain is called the graveyard of missionaries. So. That's the one thing that you're 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 dealing with. On the second hand, the churches that have started, there have been some Basque who who've met Christ and and the Lord worked in their lives. And they've started little churches. But really quick, what ends up happening is because 
Spain, Spain, in Spain, like we're just talking about in Spain right now, yeah. you know, everybody speaks Spanish. Some speak Basque. So for the 3 million Basque, about 800,000 speak Basque as their first language, so about a third of them. But it's really the core, hardcore Basques who speak Basque. And those are really the people we're trying to reach in the sense of reaching the Basques. And so when you start a church and the people that have started churches there, um, they end up defaulting to Spanish in those services, whether it's a song or whether it's prayer or whether it's preaching. Because they want to make sure everybody can understand. But then because there's not many Basques who want to go to church, you end up with immigrants who are either already Christians coming from Central or South America, from another Spanish-speaking country who come to Spain for opportunity and jobs. They end up going to these churches. And so when the immigrants end up coming to the churches, those churches end up basically becoming expat churches. And what that just means is it's a church comprised of people who aren't from that or aren't Spanish and aren't Basque. They're foreigners. So that's good that there's churches there, but the challenges for those foreign churches to reach Basque is really challenging because Basque don't want anything to do with foreigners and they don't want anything to do with Spanish. So until somebody plants a Basque speaking, culturally Basque church, which is incredibly hard to do, um, you're not going to have Basques around that church looking at that church as something that, oh, that's my culture, that's my language, that's my people, but they're just following Jesus in this new way. So when we talk about whether the Basques are reached or unreached or engaged or unengaged, they are definitely an engaged people group. So in the people group classifications, you have UPG, which is unreached people group, and then you have unengaged unreached people group. And that's even a few, a smaller subset of the people groups left in the world that are completely unengaged. So not a, not only is there no, no believers and no churches, but no one's even going there to reach yeah. them. The Basque are not a UUPG, okay? The Basque are an unreached people group. And what that means is, even though there's believers, and this is kind of the working definition we use, you can go to the Joshua Project website and learn more about this kind of stuff. But the definition we use is there's not enough Basques who know Christ and are sufficiently mobilized in a group as a local body of Christ to reach the rest of the Basques. So the task in front of the church right now whether it's believers there, believers here, or host families hosting a student is, we still need more people to share the gospel more and pray more for Basque people so that a sufficient number of Basque would meet Christ and begin meeting together in church groups and gatherings so that they can reach the rest of their people. So that's, that, that's where I'd land that plane. Yeah, Chris, that's so helpful and something that um, I'll just say this, that I really appreciate about SUSE is how the local church is valued in terms of like missions and advancing the gospel, that it's not a periphery, that it's not a relic, that it's the value that's God's design for reaching people. So I just I love hearing you talk about it and church is core and central to advancing the gospel at the local church. So, yeah, yeah and, and we I mean, without families like Holly, without churches like Gresham Bible, Sousa literally wouldn't exist. I mean, it's it's family after family after church after church all over the United States, you know, doing this together each summer that allows us to have this 
continued door, if you will, or bridge into this culture that after 30 years works the same as it did the first day. You know, yeah, it's amazing. amazing. It's amazing. It's like, man, thank you, Lord, for keeping this door open, you know? Amen. Good word. Um, I mean, there's so many questions uh, we could explore, but why don't we kind of help someone who maybe has heard about SUSE at GBC, or maybe someone's never even connected the dots or heard about it before. Holly, if you wouldn't mind speaking into this, like, how can someone get involved? They're starting to hear this. Wow, I could have someone from an unreached people group in my home over the summer with my family, just like help us understand what does that look like? What's that mean? Uh, well, it's easy. You can just give me a call, email me, stop <laughs> me at church. Yeah. Uh, any of those would work. Um, but but truly it is, it is simple. Um, there's of course a background check. There's an application to fill out to be a host family and I could um, give those all to you. Um, but really it's committing a month of your summer um, of that family time to opening your home, to welcoming somebody into your family um, and to, to just devoting that time to love on them, to share Christ with them, to um yeah, just welcome them into your home. And so uh, really that's, you know, the end of June to the end of July. Um, they go to camp in there for a few days, I think five days this summer. And um, otherwise they're in your home. So they do what you do. They go where you go. Um, every, everything is new to them here. And so there is some excitement to that. Um, going to the grocery store is fun. They are amazed at the amounts of things that we have, the different types, you know, we have every kind of chip imaginable and every kind of candy imaginable that they've never tried. And so introducing them to things is fun. Um, my kids always, you know, every time we go to the store, want our student to pick out one thing you haven't tried before and bring that home and try it. And, um, so just experiencing those things together with them, um, living in community with them. I mean, our summer doesn't stop when they're here. And so, they're still coming to church with us. They're still going to small group with us. Um, they're witnessing the relationships that we have and the interactions with our kids. Um, so really it's, it's just a vulnerability, a willingness to put yourself in that spot and to let the Lord use you, um, during your summer. One of the initial things that hooked us is that it's in our home. Um, like I said, we started in 2009, we had two little kids. Um, Michaela was, two, almost two, maybe one and a half and Levi was two and a half. And then I was pregnant. And so we had in the past, um, early on in our marriage and, um, through our younger high school and college years, we'd gone on overseas missions. And, um, that was kind of a big part of Mike and I's summer through those years. And so then when we started having little kids and I was pregnant, that became much more challenging. Um, we couldn't leave our kids we could have, I guess. It's not completely impossible, but it's difficult to leave your kids for a month with somebody when they're two and three. Um, it's difficult to travel international when you're pregnant, um, be in a different culture. And so it was just increasingly becoming more challenging for our family, but we still had a heart for missions and we still wanted to um, make our summers available to that. And so when Susa was presented at GBC, um, the opportunity for us to witness to an unreached, unreached people group and welcome the, them into our lives and do that while in our home was really enticing to us. And so 
um, Mike and I looked at each other and signed up that day. Um, they said, do you want to think about it? We said, no, we don't. This is, we know we're going to do it. So just put our name on the list. Um, we'll get all the details later. And so we just jumped right in and we had a great experience. And I, I think more than just us reaching out that that's obviously a big part of this. Um, the best people, like Chris said, are an unreached people group. And this is, um, SUSE does provide a really unique opportunity for us to, um, speak into the lives of Basque people and to love on them and to share Christ um, in ways that traditional missionaries don't have the opportunity. Um, but it's also a learning experience for our family. Um, our kids get to see us reach out to an unreached people group. They they get to see how we love on that student from another culture who is different than us, who does things different, who, you know, eats at different times and speaks different. And, um, you know, just all of those things that make them bask. Our, our kids haven't seen, I mean, we're not a super diverse area, even in America. And so this part of America. And so that was a cool opportunity for our kids to see, for them to grow in their faith, for them to practice in the comfort of our own home, um, sharing what they know about Jesus, you know, reading Bible stories with our student, praying with our student, um, just some early young opportunities to live out their faith um, in a safe environment and where we could help them walk through that. So I think yeah. it's it's a growing experience for us as a church, for our families, and, and also um, for the opportunity it provides for us to witness to the Basque people. I, I love it. I'll never forget. We had a Maya two summers in a row. And the first time she walked into Costco, it's like she was seeing another planet. It, anyway, <laughs> just with you saying that about the store, I'll never forget that. That was absolutely hilarious. Um, yeah. What else? Like um, this maybe is going to come across as, hey, we're advocating for this because we are. So like what else should people consider at GBC? I know summers are busy. Summers are precious in the Northwest. We can't all do everything maybe we want to do. But in terms of priority, this is in alignment, like our last distinctive multiplication is the vision. It talks about advancing the gospel to unreached, unengaged people groups, check. It's relationally driven, check. Like what else should people consider? Like why should they take that jump to do this this summer? Anything else come to mind? I just want to give you both a chance to just kind of share your heart on this. Chris, did you have something you were going to yeah, say? I, I, you know, I, I to answer that question, Mike, I, I think it's, uh, you know, even myself, like, so I'm I'm the area director for three states, and then I'm a, you know, coordinator for the San Diego group, and then we hosted a kid too. So, like, even when the summer gets closer and it's like my wife and I have the discussion, are, are we going to host a kid this year? Because we've hosted so many kids. You know, um, it's always like, oh, my gosh, it would, it's just so much more added to our plate. And we're hosting also. And we've got all these other responsibilities. And yet last summer we hosted Malin and she's coming back this summer and we had an incredible time and our kids had incredible time. Was it crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. But would I take that back? Never. I mean, I just got back from Basque Country, a trip there and got to meet her whole family. And we went out to the cider house and had all these great times to what if that what if I'd never said yes to hosting? We wouldn't have that connection. I mean, it's like the minute we get outside of ourselves, you know, we, we just by faith, we're just saying, God, I'm going to get outside of myself and my own, 
you know, selfish needs and desires. And sometimes those are healthy boundaries. There's, there's definitely a bit yeah, of yeah. Place for boundaries and, you know, not biting off too more than you can chew. But I think for people, they need to say, is there something that I feel like I need to be obedient in this? Like, is God asking me to do this? Not do I want to do this? I think when the question is, is God asking me to do this or is he asking believers to be hospitable and to preach the gospel and to go to the ends of the earth where the gospel has not yet been named? I think, yeah, the answer is yes to all this. So it's almost like you want to ask yourself, our founder's wife used to say, pray and ask God if you're not supposed to do this. Because yeah, unless he says, good you're not, if you're not supposed to do it, you're supposed to do it. Uh, and I would just say to people that, you're just going to be so blessed. I mean, Holly already talked about it. It's, it's really hard to, to see, but when, when we look at it as, oh my gosh, this is a huge inconvenience in my summer, that's like looking ahead at it. But once the kids get here and once you realize this is just a normal teenage kid that needs as many adults as possible pouring into their life. And then you realize there's nobody pouring spiritually into their life. And now we get to be that family and we get to be that one person that maybe we're the only one to ever pour into them spiritually. You're like, why would I, how did I doubt that I shouldn't do this? And when they leave and everybody's crying and say goodbye, I mean, you're like, man, this was the coolest thing I've ever done. Mm. And the other thing I want to say is just that I think a lot of people hear host family and they think, well, we don't have kids at home anymore, or we don't have kids yet, or, you know, we don't have kids or our kids are too little or too, too old or whatever. And the reality is we have a pretty equal amount of host homes. I call them host homes now because some are retired, some are empty nesters, some are early, just got married and and some have young children, some have babies, and some have teenagers. And every life stage presents a different opportunity or uh, advantage, if you will, to hosting. And so what's beautiful about SUS is because we're forming a miniature kind of mission team within the church of, of several host families hosting together, then maybe one family's retired, one family's got kids, one family's got teens. We all lean on each other during that month. And that's the other thing about Zeus is that you get closer to other people in the church because you're doing daily or every other day missional stuff together. And by the end of the month, you're like, man, I see you guys so much this month. It's been amazing. And we've done all these, we've done this all together and you get really close to other people in the church. So I think it's important for people to know, like, don't disqualify yourself right away because I'm too old or I'm too young or I'm too whatever. If God's put on your heart to do it, then do it, jump in, you know? Um, the other thing I think people might be asking another frequently asked question is like, what are the kids like? And they're, they're sweet kids. You know, they, they don't, they're not here. They're only here four weeks. They're not like trying to do drugs. They're not trying to like, you know, hook up with other teens. You know, they're not, they're not troublemakers. These are, these are well-off families, to be honest that can afford to come over here. And they've told their kids that they need to be on their best behavior. So these are, you know, 99% of these kids are really just great, sweet kids. So that's not, I want people to know um, there's no, there's not like 
people might think, oh, I'm letting a teenager into my house. He's going to, he or she might corrupt my son or daughter or something like that. That is not the case. I mean, Holly, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you look at it from their perspective, uh, they're coming into a home that's that's brand new. Everything's brand new. The, yeah. the way we live is entirely different than the way they live. Um, and even within our family units, um, it's very different. They don't interact often um, intergenerationally. So right. obviously they see their parents at home um, or their siblings at home, but they don't hang out in groups of community like we do here, especially in churches. Um, they hang out with their quadrilla, which is their friend group. And that friend group is all the same age or very close to the same age. And so um, in some ways they don't know how to interact when they come. And so they're not coming with this big um, agenda or uh, intentions to do things one way or the other, they, they don't really know what to expect. And so they're just this innocent teenager thrown into a new culture that speaks a different language, that lives a different way, that eats different food, that sleeps at different times, <laughs> many different things. And so, um, they're pretty timid. It's, 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 uh, yeah. The first few days are, are awkward and they're shy and they they're just trying to learn and and yeah. experience all of the things and take it in. And so, um, like Chris said, there is a sweetness to them. They will sit and and read with your kids. Um, they they'll go play a game of ping pong. They'll you know, they they're just trying to do things that help them to feel more comfortable. And so um, it, it wouldn't be like a teenage, another teenager from America coming and mm -hmm. already knowing everything and, you know, having intentions to do this and do right. that. Right. Um, they, they're just learning, they're trying to take it all in. And so, um, and we yeah. do go through a training. Holly takes all the families through two training, uh, trainings that kind of cover all the different things that might come up. Like there might be an issue with cell phones or there might be an issue with, you know, this or that, or the other thing, we talk through those ahead of time so that host families feel prepared for if there was to be an issue of some kind, how would I deal with that? So definitely. Yeah, that's great. And maybe someone has a question just real quick in terms of language proficiency. Are mm -hmm. the students generally able to communicate when they're here? Just what would you say to that? I think uh, they would say that they're very bad at English. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that they're all adequately proficient and yeah. can. Um, there will always be some words that they stumble over, um, that they don't use often. The and they haven't heard in English. Right. And so yeah. there's going to be some words you have to figure out. We definitely do need to slow down, um, the speed in which we talk because we can rattle things off pretty quickly. And so, especially at the beginning of the month, just that intention, being intentional about slowing down, speaking, um, more clearly, not using slang, things like that. But for the most part, they do very well. Um, they know quite a bit of English. And by the end of the month, they're really keeping up um, well. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm excited for this opportunity for our local church in this. Um, we'll be talking about it more, you know, in different ways for GBC. And even in the show notes of this podcast, we'll have some information and some links for people to just kind of get up to speed on this. But just want to give both of you the chance, any kind of closing thoughts or encouragements or just things you think would be helpful for people to hear about SUSA? 
I think people wonder, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, here's a student, they, they know we're Christians over here and they, they're coming over here, not necessarily to learn about Christ, but they're coming over here and they know that we're, you know, they're going to be at a church and they'll be with a Christian family who prays and all that. And their parents know that. So it's all very open. And you think, okay, so what's my job this summer? Or like, what kind of an expectation should I have in terms of sharing the gospel with this student? I mean, are we hoping that by week four, they're getting baptized and, and we send them back and they jump into a church plant. And in the, in the quick, quick version of that, and we cover this in the training is that if you were to take someone who's never heard the gospel ever in their life, it's going to take several times and several people and, and lots of prayer before probably that person responds. Like you think about even just an American neighbor or a friend who doesn't know the Lord and didn't grow up in a church background, it's going to take a while uh, to for them to come to a point where they're ready to say, I'm all in for Jesus. So what we just encourage people is that this is a very much a seed sowing ministry. Um, when the f- students first come, our job is to simply be the aroma of Christ. And they go home thinking, man, Christians are really awesome people. I had such a different view of Christianity and Christians. They're not weird. Yeah. Maybe they're a little weird, (laughs) like everybody's a little weird. Sorry, Chris, we're going to blow that idea up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The, the, these people are actually very loving, very caring. And these kids go home telling their mom and dad, like mom, dad, I was treated so well. I I feel so at home there. I feel so comfortable there. I want to go back. And so really quick, even in the first few days, they're texting their mom and dad saying, I'm good. This is awesome. These are good people. I think Basques are actually really good at sniffing out, like if someone's, you know, a genuine and a, and a good person. And so um, we're here to that first summer. I mean, you might have a really powerful gospel conversation and we hope and pray for that. But the first summer or, or even the first two times they visit, it's more just establishing a a strong relationship and establishing trust. And then the other question we hear is, well, then what, where does this go? Like, let's say a student does want to follow Christ. What, where does this go on on when they go home? Like what happens when they go home? And the cool thing is we've got a team on the ground there who provide opportunities for the kids to continue plugging into SUSE youth events. And for the kids who want to even go deeper and even plug into like a Bible study uh, scenario, we have that. So right now there's nine students from last summer who are involved in a thing we call Basque Helpers. And it's basically the alpha course. If some of you may or may, may or may not be familiar with, it's a primer on Christianity. And so through the, through the fall, winter, and spring, they go through the alpha course. And then they also touch on a bunch of leadership stuff. And there's nine kids right now involved in that because they chose to be a part of that Basque Helper uh, discipleship group. So there are opportunities when they go back to plug into continued learning about Christ, or just even for some of them, I just loved my SUSE experience and I just want to be around it more. I want to come to the events and we just trust that God is going to be slowly drawing each kid at the right pace for that student. And then even their parents, we have even parent last summer, a Basque parent who was so in North Carolina, she was so blown away by the change that happened in her son that she ended up asking the coordinator over um, email and Zoom about Christ and came to know the Lord. 
and now is doing oh, an, online Bible, an online Bible study with, with this coordinator. So you just don't know, it might not even be the student, but it might be through the student you're reaching the family. So um, there are opportunities for, for you to continue the relationship like, like the Regalmans have done, continued these, these relationships now for over a decade. So it's really, it's really neat to know that there are ways for the kids to continue on growing if that's something that, that you know, they show interest in. Thank you for yeah. highlighting that, Chris. I love that and playing the long game. Um, yeah, Holly, what would you say? Yeah, I think that that we can be a part of that. Um, I know for us personally, uh, like I said, we started in 2009 and that student we communicated very minimally with the first couple of years after she'd been in our home. Um, now as technology is a little bit better um, and she's grown up a bit, uh, she now is married and has two kids of her own. Um, I have gone and, and visited when she had her first baby, Leo. I went and played grandma and just helped and was around their home and helped them welcome their child. And um, so I think there is ongoing things. They're not, they're not everyday things. They're not even every year things, um, but ways for us to continue to pour into their lives. Yeah. Um, also our, you know, one of our students, Sayoa, she has come three times. Um, she went through that helper program that Chris is talking about um, and then came as a leader. And, um, you know, the first year she, we didn't have any strong gospel conversations. We loved on her, like I explained, and we welcomed her into our family. Um, she came back the second year, um, much of the same. And, you know, again, some conversations, but no profound you know, recognition of Christ or invitation into her life. Um, but, but she was hearing and her heart was clearly being softened. And so then she did that program, you know, over in Basque country, they met on a weekly basis and, and went through a book at that time. And then she came back as a leader and, um, you know, she's on some of the Sousa videos saying like, I want to know about Jesus. Uh, and so the, 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 the impact is there and and we don't always see it. Um, we don't see it necessarily that first summer. I think she came the first time in 2012. So that, that was 11 years ago. Um, but the Lord's been working in her heart that whole time. And so her brother came, um, you know, I, he did a summer abroad study here at Cal Poly and he flew here first and I, drove him down to college like a mom would do and got him sheets and pots and pans and moved That's him in. Awesome. And, you know, Cal Poly had this, um, uh, like admission sheet that they filled out and asked him a bunch of questions. And one of those questions was, uh, about the Bible. And would you feel comfortable talking about the Bible or reading the Bible in a group? And, um, he had five other Basque friends that were there with him. And so I had all of them in my car and, and we were having this conversation and, and they were talking about like, no, you know, they all put no. And he was like, Oh, well, I put, yes, I've talked to the Bible about, about the Bible with Holly. And, um, you know, it's, it's just a conversation we can talk about it. And so I, over the last 14 years have seen the softening of, of the hearts, not just of our individual students, but even as a culture, um, that first student came and and they're removed enough from Franco that they didn't personally witness that, but their parents and their grandparents did. And, and I think as each generation comes, 
they're another generation removed from that. And so their hand isn't just straight out. Don't talk to me about it. They, they've experienced the love in our homes and they've, they've seen that we, we mean when we say we love them, we mean it. And we, we want to pour into their lives and we want to welcome them into our families. And so we do have this opportunity and their hearts are softened to that. And they are more willing now than they were 14 years ago to talk about Jesus. And, And whether that means they're inviting him into their heart this summer, maybe not, but as, as a culture, as a whole culture, they're, they are being softened and they are um, more willing to talk about it. And so Sousa has played a huge role in that. And I think, um, you know, I hope for the day when there's enough people with hearts softened that it kind of just explodes in vast country and, and there is a revival. And I, um, we definitely know that is a possibility. We know the Lord's capable of that. And so, um, this is just a cool way to be a small part of seed planting and, and, um, softening and, um, you know, and, and we hope to see the revival. We don't know if that, that'll be in our lifetime, but what a cool way to be a small part of it. Yeah, Amen. Thank you. Yeah. Every tongue and nation and tribe that includes the Basque people, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And reaching a people group is a long obedience in the same direction, you know, when you're talking Amen. about it, reach people group. And so, you know, I, yeah, I just want to echo what Holly said is I've been doing this, you know, now a little over 20 years and, and it's the same feeling of, Every year, there's more and more openness. There's more and more receptivity to the things of God and and Scripture, and it's exciting because it means that we're getting closer to uh, the church being birthed in this culture. and And it, it it's it's what Seuss is doing. It's what other missionaries that are focused on Basque Country are doing. It's what the local churches have been doing over there. It's everybody, the whole church, to reach the whole world. So, Amen. Yeah, man. I so appreciate each of you. And thanks for your willingness to come on the podcast. So many more questions we could explore, but probably should wrap it up. Um, So Gresham Bible Church, hope you found this episode helpful. If you have any questions, like Holly said, talk to Mike or Holly at church, Uh, reach out to me. Happy to share more. We'll be hearing more as a church about Susa and our opportunity to get involved uh, this summer. And so if this uh, brings up any specific questions or thoughts, always feel free to reach out to me Um, through the podcast. You can do that by emailing me at mike at greshambible.org. So until next time, thank you, Gresham Bible Church.